Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. Hello, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bidder, the podcast where I speak to bands and artists about how they forged their own way in their career in music and personal life. On today's episode, I have the four times Grammy nominated Canadian singer, songwriter, poet, activist and multi-instrumentalist Alison Russell, who has her new album, The Returner, coming out in September. 
The returner, Alison says, is a reclamation of self, of sensuality, of sexuality, and groove as an urgent call to action and political activism. It follows her solo debut album, Outside Child, from two years ago. And in this conversation, Alison talks about the abuse she suffered as a child, subsequently leaving home at an early age, and the night that changed everything for her as she got up on stage to sing for the first time, being egged on by a friend. Cheers for listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs. If you like this show, if you like the idea of it, which is really to expand people's stories and show that artists are very much human too, please feel free to subscribe. You can leave a rating on Apple or Spotify. Only takes a second that. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so. I love hearing these artists' stories. And right now, with such a transparent music industry, the influence really is coming down to the individual. I think right now is a great time for these talks. So, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bidder, and here is Alison Russell. This show is 101 Part-Time Jobs because it's about everything that goes into yeah. being an artist, between yeah. tours, between going on, between making records, and... Finding that, I guess it's a lot about identity, about yeah. like drilling inside yourself and finding out what makes you work. And, you know, there's that, that, that saying that you're writing to find out why you're writing. Yeah. And yeah. I find that really fascinating because it's, it's, it's about finding the time. And so, you know, what you say about, you know, your life and music having collaborators, has it taken a long time to, 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 to find out what works for you now? You know, I think it's just always evolving. Um, I've always known that collaboration was deeply important to my creative process. I'm not, I, that's what I thrive on. I'm ex that mysterious alchemy that occurs when you do that kind of circle work and the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. Like that's the alchemy I'm really hooked on and the joyful kind of trust fall of what it takes to be in creative communion that deeply with people. And I think I've certainly had some like false starts in my past where maybe it wasn't the right alignment of folks trial and, and error trial and error and, and people can be wonderful wonderful musicians but you're just not right for each other when it comes to opening that mysterious conduit as you say that there's so there's always an element of mystery and inspiration but then there's also just craft and sweat and diligence and obsession frankly i mean i think i don't know if you've had this experience as, as a writer as an artist but th there's a a strong uh, level of compulsion, at least for me, oh, it, with, with writing. It's a condition. <laughs> it's a condition that I'm never going to recover from. And I've now accepted that joyfully. Yeah. <laughs> I find that, you know, it, there's always going to be setbacks. And this, you know, this is a, this it applies to everyone, whether you're trying to be a doctor or, yeah. or a writer or, 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 or whatever you're, you're doing, there's always going to be setbacks in life. Yeah. As an artist, you're so vulnerable, really, because you're just leaving yourself open and, you know, yeah. not even talk about just reviews, but, the way you see yourself, you know, yeah. you're putting your putting your emotions out on record and 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 the rest, you know, that, that. How do you come back from those setbacks that you that you come across along the way? Those those little walls that you need to come over. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I feel like it's you you go through them. You just have to go through them. There's no avoiding them. There's no going around or under or over. You just there's no way out but through. Mm -hmm. And and I think that each of those setbacks we learn. We learn in conflict, we learn in disappointment, we learn in rejection, we learn to find our people, our chosen, you know, we all have chosen family, I think, that we find who really, that we, that we keep each other bolstered for the fight, yeah. you know, the fight for self-expression, the fight for freedom, the fight for equality in, in many cases, and, you know, for me as a queer black mom new immigrant living in the u.s in a time of rising reactionary neo-fascism really um i'm leaning into my community even more not just for songs but just to keep hope alive and that we can turn the ship around you know <laughs> before 
before we self-annihilate basically as a species so not to get heavy but you know that's yeah. that's kind of where i'm at right now i think we need to acknowledge yeah. that we it's almost yeah. like we've got some cognitive dissonance between our phone and our yes everyday chatting yes you're so right because it's skewed i talk about this with my daughter a lot my daughter's nine years old now and she's not allowed to she doesn't have a phone yet she's not allowed to be on social media but a lot of her friends are older and are on tiktok and are on instagram and they're experiencing that horrible funhouse mirror effect of people being either unrealistic best versions of themselves or absolute worst versions of themselves and neither one is the truth mm. right e each one each side of that ex each extremity is a distortion of the reality people say the most horrific things online that they would never in a million years say to someone's face and it's not even really who they are they're they're having a moment of venting that they get addicted to there's kind of a like a there's a negativity bias so there's literally an algorithmic and and therefore dopamine right. uh, reinforced rush to putting out the worst of the worst because that gets amplified you know and that get even when people are repudiating it or think they're repudiating it they're actually amplifying it right and that's we saw that with i don't even say his name but the 45th president uh former president we saw that with him how you know the free advertising that everyone and their dog gave that person uh, because of the negativity bias mm. and it was all a joke until there's a very unstable dangerous person in the white house with the nuclear codes mm. right so it's mm -hmm. we know it's not a joke now going into 2024 and with these rising tides of scapegoat uh driven you know scapegoating of our queer community community scapegoating of our trans community scapegoating of the black community as per usual um going into 2024 in the you know i'm a canadian living in the u.s now so i'm really feeling these forces at play of the distortion that's happened online that is affecting people in real life yeah. it's causing deaths it's causing teenage suicide rates to spike it's causing violence and fear and division it's sowing division purposefully it's it's psychological warfare i think and to some degree what's happening um in particular in America right now with the, the purposeful disinformation campaigns. When you're writing, how much does does all that come in to play? I think it's always all there. I think it's a bit like the everything everywhere all at once yeah. effect of of life. You know, we are, none of us are writing from a vacuum. And none, uh, in that sense, even when you're writing alone, you're not writing alone, you're you're writing from all of everything that you've heard, everything that you're processing, everything that you've lived, that that comes to bear upon what you write. It just does. You don't always know what's in ascendance and, and driving a particular song or essay or story or poem, but it's all there. And we are affected by, we're all interconnected and we're affected by everything. What happens to one community affects us all, whether we acknowledge it or not. You know. I find it interesting that chaos ultimately mm, yeah and trying to work that out into a road of discipline yeah of you know what time do you wake up in the morning yeah. when, when do you start writing i mean what, what time do you wake up in the morning well it depends on on the tour it depends on when i'm at home i have a daughter so it's early mm. it's getting my daughter you know at home do the school run yeah we, we do breakfast we get to school we're very lucky that her school is walking distance from our house if we get up early enough we walk yeah. if we don't my partner drives her with uh you know you gotta watch out entropy trailing if you're near, yeah. if you're near the school she's gonna start learning yeah. to skive off and run home <laughs> during french lessons yeah no, you might be right <laughs> she's not there yet she she's still at the age she just graduated from third grade wow. and so she is at the age where she adores school she Great. adores her friends every you know her friends she's a reader. everything she's a massive reader she's a writer Brilliant. she's been a writer since she was two i mean she's been spinning these stories and tales and now she's writing songs you know she's Amazing. got she's got her holy trinity of lizzo billy eilish and taylor swift those are her her three you know she just worships their writing and really goes in deep on their writing it's really fascinating to watch her to watch her processing music and and songcraft and you know she came running in after listening to a taylor swift song and said mom listen to this line this line the damsels are depressed and she was 
cackling. She just thought that was the cleverest, funniest thing she'd ever heard. You know, she's it, it, so it's really lovely, like as an older writer, to watch my daughter, um, you know, older than her, obviously, go through this just just that that falling in love with with a writer falling in love with the craft of songs falling in love with you know it's it's really joyful she got to be at the Joni Jam with us and hear Joni Mitchell do her first headlining show in 23 years and was so inspired and so moved and you know has been talking about it nonstop since and you know, she and her friends getting together and writing songs. Like, it's really joyful to watch it unfolding in real time. She won't forget that. Never. I mean, never. being a young woman today, the, the artists that they have in front of, you know, the, the young women have in front of them today. Yeah. It's a lot different from, you know, when we were a bit younger, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, that w- the women have always been there. It's just the industry has been so skewed. It's been so... Um, heavily biased towards, well, straight white maleness, frankly, you know, and and now we're starting to understand that how important curatorship is and that when we have biased curatorship, we are all impoverished. You know, it's not taking anything away from the wonderful straight white men out there writing songs to also feature women and queer black women and we're not the cherry tomatoes in the salad or whatever that horrible... Uh, country music uh, curator said but it's all storytelling storytelling. we need all the stories Mm -hmm. we actually really need all the stories so that we're not so self-destructive as a species Mm -hmm. and so that we're not so self-hating and self-harming as a species compassion exactly we need all the stories our differences are our riches are we are each other's riches and when we fully understand that and actually get closer toward true equality it's going to benefit everybody exponentially i read that when excuse me i read that when you joined up with our native daughters that that was one of the first times you started well i suppose it's always going to be a road isn't it but that was a big milestone for you from a writing point of view and it was. I had been going through a very fallow period as a writer. I when when we did the fir- the the first Native Daughters record, we're talking about doing a second one eventually. But okay. um, and for those of you who don't know, our Native Daughters is Rhiannon Giddens, Lila McCalla, Amethyst Kia, and I were all uh, women descended of the Black diaspora, and we all played banjos, and that was really at the heart of the creative process for that project. Was that was Rhiannon's stipulation? We had to a banjo had to be involved in each song. And we all play different banjos, so it was really, it right. was really interesting. The banjos have in such that way. a warmth. They do, and they are really. Rhiannon talks about this. They're, they are in so many ways the the physical embodiment of the journey of America in so many ways because, of course, it comes over with our kidnapped and enslaved ancestors, but it evolves in this melting pot that includes. European diaspora, indigenous diaspora, Asian diaspora, Jewish, every wave of immigration that has ever come to the Americas. And when I say America, I mean from the Caribbean to Canada, you know, Mm. uh, the whole gamut, including South and Central America and all of North America, which of course includes Mexico. And um, that story of the banjo traveling from the Caribbean up through all the way till it gets to the southern United States, which it gets there much later. It starts in the Caribbean. The okay. oldest known banjo in the world was found in Haiti. Oh, wow. So, you know, we what we think we know about the banjo yeah. is, is, is often a little bit off the mark. And um, Rhiannon just really, we, when we got together to do that project, I was four years into being a mother. I was f- having trouble finishing a song. It's such a huge learning curve to Song be, for yourself to become it? a new mother. Yes, you know, I would write lullabies and little stories for my daughter, and that was. And my partner, parenthood had the inverse effect for them. They you know, just became prolific, and I just kind of stopped writing. I couldn't finish. It's like the discipline went out the door for write. All the creative energy was going into learning how to be a mother and. I know it was like streaming out of me with breast milk. I don't know what. I mean, I nursed my daughter till she was almost five, so that might have had something to do with it. But when we did the Native Daughters record, Ida was four, and it was my first time being away from her. We did it in 10 days in Bowbridge, Louisiana, so in the Bayou country. 
um, which had a deep resonance for me as as an immigrant from Quebec and to go to this Acadian territory where French Canadians had 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 been forced out of Acadia, out of Acadie, you know, when when the English uh, sort of colonized, you know, kicked kicked the British colonizers or the French colonizers out, and they ended up in Louisiana. So there's there's so much resonance for me as a as a Canadian, as a Quebecoise, as a Montrealaise when I go there. Um, it brought up a lot of my own history in Montreal, and we just were communing together and writing together and all of these kind of floodgates opened. There were so many things that we didn't have to say, so many experiences of being othered, you know, as black banjo-playing women within the kind of Americana and folk and roots communities, which for many years, we our presence there was questioned, you know, um, to to be reaffirming that we are foundational to those communities um, was, and, and do that together was just really healing and beautiful. And it kind of like kicked open the, the writing floodgates and they haven't shut since, so... Was there a moment that you thought, okay, now's the time to do my first solo record? Well, it was, it's funny. It was, it, as I say, I kind of couldn't turn off the tap once it was on. And so we finished the Songs of Our Native Daughters record and I just kept writing. And these songs were pouring out that were very clearly not, you know, they weren't Poe Girl songs. They weren't Birds of Chicago songs. My, my, my previous projects they they weren't our native daughter songs they were very personal and it was processing a lot of grief and, and my own past trauma of uh, being a survivor of very severe childhood abuse and um you know it was it was i just was processing a lot and i think that 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 process really started with becoming ida's mom there's so much that you have to when you become a parent and whether it's you know, biologically, or you adopt, or you foster, or there's just a child in your life that you care about. Um, you have to really self-examine like the the damaging, harmful things that you don't want to carry forward, that you don't want to pass forward, the cycles that you want to break. And I had to really, and I still have to every day decolonize my own mind because of the way that I was brought up in in a cycle of abuse. Um, that was, you know, and those those cycles thrive with our silence. And so I decided I had to start using my words a lot more bravely and courageously and um, to re- specifically to reduce harm and to break those cycles of violence and to make sure that my daughter wouldn't have to ever carry the burdens I've had to. Opening up those floodgates of your experiences, yeah. sharing give them to other people to to understand and then being nominated for a grammy twice three times three times outside child and then once more with my friend Eva donovan for her beautiful song prodigal daughter and that was this year that was this year we went to the grammys together it was so much fun amazing she's the best date i love her <laughs> i mean being it's it, what does that feel like you know opening up so much probably more so than you I mean, you tell me, but opening up more than you ever thought you would. Yeah, I mean, I never thought I would step into my own name in that way as an artist. I was always very happy to disappear within a collective, within a group. That felt safer to me for a long time because of my upbringing and um, how scary and dangerous it was, you know, that I think disappearing within a group felt very safe and comforting to me. Mm. Having a circle of trust and protection felt very safe and comforting to me. And so putting myself forward in my own name with my own story was really hard um, at the beginning. But it gets easier and easier, and it really has had an interesting effect of I feel stronger each time I share. And I feel stronger each time um, other women, men, non-binary trans folks reach out to me and say this was my experience too and hearing you sing about it has helped me process something has helped me work through something like we heal each other with these stories i know how i felt when i read i know why the cage bird sings i felt like okay i'm not alone in this world i know how i felt when i heard tracy chapman's behind the wall we were the family behind the wall oh this shameful secret is other people are living this too Maybe I can survive this. Maybe I can sing like her one day. Maybe I can write like her one day. You know, that's what representation really is, I think. It's seeing this possibility of a new path. And what did that do for you as a as a writer, as your identity, as an artist? Did that really inject some fuel? Yes, and it made me want to strive to that kind of honesty within writing, to 
that kind of bravery within writing, to that kind of power within writing, and not not to emulate, but to that this is possible, and we get to live in a world with Tracy Chapman and Joni Mitchell and Shaka Khan and um, you know these are and Mavis Staples. We get to live in this world with them, and we can strive to be as in our each in our own way as brave and as bold and as unapologetically themselves as artists and writers that they are. And this is in your remit as an artist is to find out what other people are doing, listen, yeah. read, go back to see what's come before. Yeah. And then find your own thread within that, your own tone within that. Because of course we're influenced, but we're all so unique. Yeah. And we all have our own, even in interpretation, even in covering a song, right, of another artist, every person is so unique in the way that they do that. Someone like Willie Nelson, who is such an exquisite writer himself and such an exquisite artist, but he's also an exquisite interpreter. One of my favorite Willie Nelson records is Stardust, you know, that Booker T produced back in 1978. That was, that was our daughter's favorite record when she was a newborn. We would play that all the time to comfort her. And I was really struck by the artistry of even song interpretation and how it opens up the song based on the interpreter, you know. And, and there's just so many layers to art. There's so many layers to how we access it, how we process it, how we write, how we get inspired. It's, it's endlessly fascinating to me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. What how part-time jobs, part-time jobs, part-time jobs, It's such a joy to try and think as much about art and music as possible, yeah. speak about it with your friends or speak about it here. Was it ever a struggle for you to try and keep as much as your brains of your brain space available for that? And then you've also got paying rent, trying mm -hmm. to find, you know, a healthy balance of lifestyle. For a lot of people, that's in their 20s. Yeah, you know, I think I, I have a, a funny trajectory because I left home so young. I left home when I was 15 because it was, it was really run or die. That was my situation. And it was grim for a while there. It was like sleeping in the cemetery and on park benches and you know, going into a cathedral and hiding in a pew and sleeping in the winter or wow. going to an all-night cafe and writing all night and playing chess with the old men all night in Montreal. I mean, I was very lucky to be in Montreal because Montreal is a 24-hour city. There are warm places that you can go, like the Croissant Real, which was a little cafe on Rue Saint-Laurent that I, in the McGill Ghetto, between the McGill Ghetto and, and uh, like Mile End and the Plateau, where I would just spend hours, you know, and then go to my alternative high school in the morning and snooze for a couple of hours in the student lounge. Was it like a Montessori high school? My high school was called Moving in New Directions. And in a way, really? yes, because it was it was a mind, Moving in New Directions. It was tiny. There was only about 150 kids. And it was grades 9 to 11. And in Quebec, 11th grade is when you graduate high school. So it was the, the I guess that would be what, uh, junior, sophomore, senior year. Of high I get school. So confused yeah, I, it's very confusing because all the systems are different between yeah. the US, Canada, and Britain. Yeah. But it was my final three years of high school. and But I only went for the, the final two because um, I uh, homeschooled in the ninth grade, um, which is to say I took care of my niece and nephew for a year who, who yeah. were, whose parents were having trouble. And, and, and in doing so, I realized that I needed to also protect myself. <laughs> and that was, okay. and then when they went back to their parents, I, I ran away from home to, so that, uh, to escape the abuse. And, um, you know, I was really lucky because that school, it, what, it Montessori in the sense of very much project-based learning, student-led, um, very creative. That was, you know, my first coffee houses and performing and 
my friend Kim was learning guitar and she learned a Sarah McLaughlin song called Mary. Mary walks down to the water's edge and she was too scared to sing it so she asked me to learn it. And that was the first song I publicly sang, you know. And um, totally surreal cut to two weeks ago and sitting on stage with Annie Lennox (laughs) and Sarah McLaughlin right behind Brandi Carlisle and Joni Mitchell. It was like, what is this life? How is this even possible? So anyway, going from being a teenager who didn't think she would survive to 18 to that, through the grace of writing, through the grace of art, through the grace of the community, the chosen family that I met through art. And that high school, some of my best friends in this world to this day, I went to that high school with. So um, it's, it's, yeah, that was, and I started doing, you know, telemarketing, horrible telemarketing gigs to pay for rent when I moved in the next year. When I was 16, I moved in with some some of the women from my high school that are still my dear, dear friends. And um, and I, you know, they had parents who were helping them and I did not. So I had a horrible telemarketing job that just was soul crushing. And um, Those gigs are yeah, difficult. Really difficult. You really have to be someone you're not. And that was the only one who would, that was the only company that would hire, you know, a 16 year old without experience. And That's a lot of responsibility yeah. looking after your niece and nephew. It was. Getting a job. Yeah, no, I learned know, a lot really very fast. And I learned um, how important it was to me to be creative and um realized that I was willing to make a lot of sacrifices for that and I wound up I wound up going to Vancouver from Montreal to really to escape my abuser because he was sort of stalking me around the city my my primary abuser is my adoptive father who was a white supremacist man 30 years my mother's senior who was raised uh, in a sundown town in Indiana what's a sundown town sundown towns um, unfortunately still exist in versions to today but for many years it was uh, law in parts of the U.S. and in the part that he grew up in, White County, Indiana, called White County for a reason, that people of color could not spend the night in the town or they would be lynched. It was illegal for a person of color to spend the night in the town. They could come in and do day work for slave wages, but they were not allowed to stay. And this was to prevent the crime of miscegenation, which is the mixing of the so-called races. I mean, this is what we're talking about. This is what we're dealing with Um right now still in our, in the US where they are striking black history from school books in the hopes of preventing any white child from experiencing discomfort about the atrocities of their ancestors it is really scary time in the US right now because we're we're racing back the clock um you know stripping women of bodily autonomy uh stripping queer people of rights they're trying to you know they're coming for the marriage equality act next there's even been talk of repealing the loving decision this which was the decision that allowed a black person a white person to get married so you know we're in a real a really really all hands on deck let's write the ship time in in the u.s right now and these, the big question is what and if that's not distant history right the man that abused me grew up in that grew up in a county where a black person wasn't allowed to spend the night. Those laws were on the books in his county till the early 80s. That's not ancient history. No, that's yesterday. That's yesterday. You know, it's affecting today. It's these these people who have been indoctrinated in these violent ideologies, these delusions of white supremacy, they have been brainwashed into these terrible violent beliefs. And it's not even entirely their fault, right? And but, it, but now it's like, how do we reduce harm? Yeah. And I think how do we? I think art is how we build these bridges. That's how we begin. I don't have all the answers, but I know that it starts with someone feeling something yeah. for someone that they used to dehumanize. And enjoying something. Enjoying Joy. something. Maybe being together in joyful assembly and crying to a song that they realize is actually a queer love song, and maybe they can't hate on on queer people anymore because of it you know and maybe they identify with something i wrote and go maybe she's a human being after all even though she's queer and black you know it's that is a real thing and there's a fascinating story actually this is a total aside of a a gentleman who a young man who was very very into the the white supremacist scene you know was a card-carrying nazi and did this mdma (laughs) testing that they've been doing um, to to study the effects on various issues, and this man came out of it repudiating his white supremacy 
saying we have to love each other, weeping, and he's now put himself into therapy. He's trying to to decolonize his own mind, to debrainwash. Wow. And well, we I, isn't that fascinating? Though, right? Like the you know, the, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying everyone should take ecstasy, but I mean that is a fascinating effect yeah. that it had on this particular man who had been suffering from a real empathy deficit and an impairment, an empathy impairment, and and the delusion of white supremacy came out of it with you know having had an epiphany that this is wrong you know like, we do need to live yeah. a compassionate life yes i mean yes. a compassionate life is some way towards a happy exactly life. and that includes forgiveness which is really hard that's the hard one right it's really hard when you have to be compassionate and forgiving towards someone who has really harmed you and dehumanized you and abused you like that's the hardest and that's sort of my that's where i am right now i'm trying to learn how to do that fully you know because that's how we that is how we really change the world i think eventually you know in a deep way you know in a way that can create safety and abundance for generations to come instead of trauma and abuse and harm cycles that we're trapped in right now you worked as a mental health worker i did yeah so that was that was the best job of my life other than music that was a life-changing job and when I got to Vancouver um, I did all kinds of things at first I worked at a stable for a while where I was mucking out horse stalls I worked as a as a kind of a, a completely unqualified legal secretary for a really interesting woman who had become a barrister and solicitor in her 40s after leaving an abusive marriage and champion specifically domestic violence cases. So that was was actually, that was a really important transitional job for me too, working for her and knowing what you can come back from and how strong you can get and how you can show up as an advocate yeah. as as a joyful survivor. And as part of the system, as yeah. part of uh, yeah. law. Exactly. Wow. And so that was really, and I eventually led, uh, I eventually, after working for her, um, she was a barrister named um, and solicitor in Vancouver um, named uh, Linda Templeton. So thank you, Linda, if you ever hear this, for leading by example. Um, but I charged my abuser after working for her for a year. And that was a really important step, too, um, in reclaiming myself and, and some self-worth and some self-care. Mm. And uh, I imagine that must have felt incredibly empowering to do something about it. Yeah, it did. It really did. And just knowing that because even during the investigation, that he couldn't be alone with children during the investigation. So I was, that was reducing harm. There was immediate action. There was immediate action that he couldn't be alone with children. And so that reduced harm. And that was worth it, yeah. you know, for as painful and awful as it was to have to fly back to Montreal and walk into a police station to make the initial report. That's what you have to do. Mm. And it's brutal. And then you get assigned to essentially the special victims unit, you know, the victims of sexual violence. I don't like the word victim. I've never thought of myself as such. I much prefer the word survivor. And I think everyone should adopt the word survivor. Um, those, those kinds of organizations included because you have to do things like make a victim statement. And I would, that little shift in language yeah. to call it a survivor statement, I think would be really helpful. That language really informs mm -hmm. thought, doesn't it? It really does. It really affects thought. So mm -hmm. work and you, you've been very much intertwined. Yeah. yeah. And the Portland, when I started working at the Portland Hotel Society, they are an amazing organization. They started uh, solely as a housing society and basically meeting the desperate need that arose in, I believe it was in the, maybe in the late 80s and early 90s that they that they've started and I'm don't quote me on this because I could be wrong about their start date but there was a mental health institution um, called Riverview that got shut down and people that had been institutionalized some of them for 30 years were kicked out on the street with nowhere to go and they ended up in an area of Vancouver called the downtown east side and if you ever saw the wire that show the downtown east side is sort of analogous to like Amsterdam and the wire. It was, and it has wound up being a concentrated area of extreme poverty of, uh, you know, the main port of entry for all the heroin in Canada. So it's a major uh, scene of addiction and um, the harm that comes from treating addiction as a crime mm. rather than a health issue. Mm. It's a health issue. It's not a crime. It is, yeah. And, um, 
unfortunately, Canada has followed the lead of America of uh, of a punitive war on drugs mentality that vastly exacerbates and exponentially increases harm rather than decreasing harm. Um, and so the Portland formed as a housing society that said we everyone deserves a home, whether they are actively using drugs, whether they have a mental health diagnosis, whether or not they're coming in and out of rehab or jail, using, not using, involved in the sex trade, not involved, everybody deserves a home and a home where they can be, feel safe and feel respected and loved. And so that was what's called low threshold housing. There's a lot of housing that's for if you're in recovery, but if you relapse, you get kicked out. There's a lot of housing for if you're detoxing, but if you relapse, you're kicked out. And it's very difficult to get out of that cycle. It's very difficult to get out of the cycle. Some people, a tiny percentage of people may never get out of the cycle. And that's when we have to look at managing something in a humane and harm-reducing way. That's where you get things like methadone trials or prescribed heroin trials. There are all kinds of of harm reduction ways to approach an addiction that is not going to go away, uh, rather than being punitive and saying to someone, you deserve to die in the street, which is what we are saying when we say, we don't accept you unless you're in recovery. We don't accept you unless you've stopped using. We don't accept you unless you're not involved in the sex trade anymore. We don't accept you unless, you know. Um, so that was what the it's Portland so tied was. Up the into Portland class, was. It? It's completely tied up into class, and it's completely tied up into so-called race. In the downtown east side, the vast majority of people who were experiencing the greatest harm were survivors of of cultural attempted cultural genocide in our in our indigenous community. Our government of Canada has acknowledged that it was attempted genocide. That, that, that's the magnitude of harm that's happened. How did they acknowledge that? In what form? There was a two-year, it was over the last five years, there was a two-year truth and reconciliation inquiry across Canada where people from Indigenous communities had to be re-traumatized by telling the stories of harm that had occurred in their communities, including the horrific residential school system, which did not stop until the 90s in Canada, which is ongoing in the U.S. There's still a residential school in North Dakota. And what is a residential school? They were schools set up by the government uh, of Canada, and I'm talking about the Canadian ones, of Canada and religious organizations, mostly Catholic religious organizations, where they forcibly stole children from their families, indigenous children, and forced them into these schools to so-called assimilate. They were beaten for speaking their indigenous languages. They were horrifically abused in every way that you can be abused. And in the last two years, we have been digging up, indigenous communities have been digging up mass unmarked graves filled with thousands and thousands of children, indigenous kids that were murdered by our government and by our colonizer communities and by our religious institutions. And it has been acknowledged now. It is You can read the, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, inquiry into the residential schools, into missing and murdered Indigenous women and children and two-spirit people. Um, it is... It is um, there, there's no words for how bad it has been and continues to be. There continues to be entire communities in the north of Canada, Indigenous communities, without clean uncontaminated drinking water and our government continues to abuse treaties to extract every last bit of whatever they can sell out of indigenous lands it is the shame of our country and um and it's ongoing and in our downtown east side you see that reflected because when you have generational trauma of that magnitude there's fallout from that and that includes um, cycles of abuse. It includes addiction to self-medicate, and and that's what that's what we see in the data. And as well as there's there's a high concentration of black folks there. There's a high concentration communities that have experienced egregious intergenerational harm disproportionately show up uh, beneath the poverty line and in the greatest danger. Um, and that is that is. By design, not accident. It's so, a problem to <clears throat> love where you come from, 
love the specific communities of where you come from mm -hmm. but really acknowledge and remember everything you've been talking about yeah but it's the the, the work is ongoing right the truth and reconciliation is not useful without some form of reparation without doing something about the ongoing exponential harm that our communities are facing we have to make changes that can be uncomfortable for people but we have to do it if we don't want our children yeah. to bear these burdens yeah growing is uncomfortable it's uncomfortable like puberty is awful remember it sucked it was awful but we survived it some of us i like that know? analogy of yeah being a lobster yeah and you grow too big for your shell yes it's really painful it's painful you gotta you get crack it, it or a snake shedding its skin and it's i'm sure it's uncomfortable for the snake to shed its skin yeah but then and we can learn a lot from yeah nature yeah yes we are nature we're part of nature yeah. and we forget that at our peril we deny that at our peril we set ourselves up in some sort of dominion over at our peril mm. we are subject to you know we are completely dependent on this planet's abundance and uh, you know, no, no wealthy men taking spacecrafts uh, to find new worlds to destroy. Notwithstanding, this is the one planet we have that we know we can survive on, and uh, we better start loving it better. You know, the Returner does a lot of the record. Is it is 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 the nucleus of the record returning to yourself, returning to nature? Yeah, I think it's it's layered. It can be all those things. It's also open to interpretation for the listener. This without said child, I got really voluminous and um, and specific in talking about each song and the history and what it meant and why I wrote it. With the returner, I've written one haiku before each. Yeah, I always I always print out the lyrics. I think it's really important to have the lyrics for so the nerds like me that care about it. Brilliant. There's a little haiku before each song that's related to the song, but that's it. And that's all I said. And, but I will, yes, there are, there are many, many layers to this record, but the idea of a returner to me is that idea of being a joyful survivor. And we are all returning from various things all throughout our life. It never stops. There's never some period where, okay, now we're in the sun and all is well and we'll never experience another hardship or conflict ever again. That's, that's just not life. We're constantly returning. I actually, the first time I used that expression of returner was after um, Joni Jam at Newport when, when, when Brandy and Joni surprised everyone at the Newport Folk Festival last year. She was the surprise closing set and Brandy very generously invited me to, to join in on that set to sing harmonies and play clarinet. And, um, and I was so moved by the entire experience. None of us knew you know, if Joni would be up for singing and she just gained strength with each song. She sang the whole set and she even played guitar on a song. And no one had, no one thought, you know, she's come back from death three times. The last horrific, devastating aneurysm that she's still healing from and recovering from now. They told her she wouldn't walk or talk, let alone sing and play guitar. And so I was... I wrote a poem after that experience uh, to Joni and in the poem I called her Our Lady Returner uh, because she really to me is is an embodiment of the gris, grit and grace of the human spirit and what we can come back from um, and what we can survive. And so that idea started kind of just, that seed got planted and it started flowering and um and yeah, there are different meditations, groove-based, move, moving meditations on what it means to be a returner on the, on the record. But I think if I had to say in one line, you know, what's the thesis statement? It's a record about stealing joy from the teeth of turmoil. You know, we are joyful survivors and it's hard-won joy. And we know, we know what the stakes are and that joy is even stronger and fiercer because of it. That's such a wonderful story about the poem you wrote after Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Alison, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. This is a great chat. I love hearing about these stories and I couldn't probably articulate it so much as a teenager reading NME and Kerrang. Yeah. But those stories about musicians yes. were always as important to me as the music. Yes. It's so, you're so right to learn because it's a, pa it's a roadmap, mm. isn't it? It might not be your particular roadmap, but it's someone's roadmap and you learn from their journey. Mm. 
you know, and, and you take pieces maybe from their journey yeah. sometimes, right? That were, that, oh, I think I could, this makes sense. This is something I could do. We're all on our yeah. own paths. We're exactly. all on our own journeys. You could read an interview with a tennis player yeah. and think, oh, I'm going to yeah. take, exactly. take that one line they said. I always say this to Ida and to anyone who listen, like never underestimate the power of a story. Never underestimate the power of your own story. Mm. It's the best thing we could give. It is the best thing we can give. Yeah. yeah. I like to end these with a good story of a mistake that, that you've made <laughs> and i'm thinking you know for me that was i smashed a lot of glasses working at the pub and uh, quite i did a few laboring jobs and i'd yeah. often say i could do something but i couldn't really i just want to hey even working at this radio station yeah. quite often i'd be like yeah i'll do it even if, if i didn't necessarily know how yeah. to yeah and th- those ends up that, that those situations end up in sort of calamity but you know I, it's the comical calamity that i'm really thinking about or t- yeah. that i enjoy do any anecdotes do any stories of a, a comical calamity <laughs> well the first time i ever sang on stage i was 15 um i was uh it was not at my school coffee house it was actually my friend white allison we called each other white and black allison was not very pc um we learned but uh yeah we learned better later but we had a comedy duo together called sister blackfish and we were obsessed with kids in the hall and monty python and we were like doing ridiculous sketch comedy and and busking for tourists and then we'd get enough money to she had a, a crush on a, a fiddle player that worked at this irish pub in montreal called hurley's irish pub and we would go and listen to their set and they played a lot of traditional scottish and english and irish music and we scraped together enough money to each nurse like a tea for three hours i'm sure they just loved us in there and montreal is quite we were underage but if you were a woman and you had already grown breasts they pretty much would let you in anywhere so back then you know this was in the the bad old 90s you know like the so we would we would we would go and um and nurse these teas and i started to know the songs and there was a stan rogers song that i loved called made on the shore and i asked for that song and uh, the singer had had you know a throat issue that day and the fiddle player looked me in the eye and said well you know how to sing it get up here and sing it i know you know the words and I was just so embarrassed and I thought, oh, I can't possibly do this. And Allison, my white Allison, forced me onto the stage and I just started crying. <laughs> I just stood there and I cried and it was, I just wanted to die. I wanted, I wanted the ground to swallow me up. And, and the fiddler, whose name was Jerry O'Neill, he was a lovely man from, um, from County Cork, I think he was. No, Donegal. He's from Donegal in Ireland. And, and he played like the fiddle on his forearm and he had these huge hands. He was a really cool guy. And he sort of patted me on the shoulder. He's like, well, the worst is over now, so you might as well sing. And so I did. He just, he, he what you're talking about, of the way, you know, these, these, these obstacles that we overcome. My stage fright, I cried, you know, ugly cried on stage. And then Jerry walked me through it and said, now you can sing. And I sang, Made on the Shore, a beautiful Stan Rogers song kind of written in the, in the tradition of, uh, of the great ballads of the hidden canon of the oral tradition. And, and after I sang, he said to me, you can come and sing here anytime. You know you're a musician, right? Oh, wow. He whispered that in my ear. And, and, and I didn't know I was a musician until he whispered that in my ear. So it was a mistake on stage, but it, 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 was, a, it was a transformative moment. Yeah. Wow. What a brilliant story. <laughs> we learn. Thanks we for making me think about that story again. I was like, gosh, yeah, that was the, probably the most embarrassed I've ever been on stage. Yeah. <laughs> what a wonderful thing for someone older than you to give you advice. Isn't that lovely? That's Mentorship. We're all both mentors and mentees. That's the other thing. You know, I say that to my daughter. I learn more from her than I'll ever be able to teach. And it's just the truth. Yeah. You know, we're, it's both. We're both at the same. It's not, it's never a zero sum equation. You know, it's... It is, it's like the everything everywhere all at once effect once again, you know. Thank you so much, Alison. Thank been you, brilliant. Giles. It's been lovely to meet you and chat with you. So there was Alison Russell. Her second album, The Returner, is coming out on the 8th of September. You can pre-order that now. If you've liked this episode, please do review, subscribe, 
and rate it wherever you're listening to this. It's such a huge help to keep getting fantastic guests like Alison, like the guests I've got coming up, which include The Hives, The Coral. So by leaving a review or rating, you're having an individual impact on the show, for which I am incredibly thankful. I do episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, so I'll see you next Tuesday with an episode with Howlin' Pele from The Hives. I'll be back then. Have a great weekend.